Hi, Dr. Tharoor. Welcome to the Kuros Capital. This is the part two of your podcast with us. Um, in three days, we got one million hits from around the world. So clearly, people are really interested to understand your career principles. And these hits were not just people who were Indians, but uh, from all around the world. Our top three countries were uh, India, UK, and the US. And clearly, people are really interested to learn more about you. And before we get started, by the way, belated World Idli Day. First of all, thanks to all those people who listened. I'm surprised and gratified. And please, I must admit, uh, and as for World Idli Day, I've always believed that idlis are the supreme breakfast food ever made by God or man. So um, I'm delighted there is no World Idli Day, and I'm happy to celebrate it every year. But I have to admit that for me, every day is World Idli Day because I have idlis every single morning if I can possibly help it. Um, you know, that's uh, that's essentially what I want to begin the part two of this podcast on. Uh, you have so many activities. Last time uh, we spoke about your early career. Today we want to talk about your UN days and thereafter. But let's start with your routines and habits. How does your morning look like usually these days? What do you do? Well, these days are untypical days because you and I are both in the middle of a coronavirus lockdown. Uh, do you want me to talk about these days or, or the um, average day? An average day, an average day, just a regular day. Parliament is in session. Um, so one wakes up, one reads the newspapers, one uh, uh, actually puts in an hour with a trainer at the gym because that's uh, more and more essential as middle-aged spread has conquered me and I've lost the battle of the bulge. So I need to do something to, to counteract that. Um, I have breakfast, which always includes idlis. Um, I look at any urgent messages, um, emails, and papers relating to the day's parliament session, uh, and then I head out uh, to parliament. Now, when I'm in parliament, communications are not just difficult, they're impossible. There's a jammer on in parliament. So you cannot uh, either receive or send uh, either calls or texts. So you are essentially equipped with whatever you have when you go. Um, of course, you can step out of Parliament and communicate with your staff in an emergency. And I've had to do that once or twice, like when I was suddenly asked to um, to uh, participate in a debate on which my notes were sitting at home because that debate wasn't supposed to be happening that day. So in those circumstances, you know, you, you've got to have some means of anticipating responses to unexpected emergencies. But uh, the, the, the two clues, I suppose, in terms of your podcast would be adequate preparation, uh, being physically and mentally uh, ready, and at the same time having an escape uh, in case something unexpected happens that requires you to get um, material information, data, whatever it may be, uh, from your office or from some other source um, when you are not in a position to go out and get it yourself. So all of these things happen, and then um, very often there's a lunch break in Parliament, and unlike other MPs who hang around uh, chatting with each other, which would be fun. I usually come back uh, to my home office, catch up with my staff, uh, see anything else, uh, swap files, more papers, etc., and then and then return. If I'm speaking in Parliament, a debate, it's one thing. If I'm not, it's often a shorter afternoon for me, and I will allow my office to schedule appointments, even on Parliament days, in my home office from. Uh, usually 4.30 or 5 onwards on days when I'm not speaking in a debate. Those appointments tend to go on uh, on most days till 8.30 or 9, 
we will squeeze in a visitor or two uh, of, a, of a slightly more relaxed or social nature after that. And then uh, whatever little time remains for dinner and family time. Uh, right now, my mom and sister are visiting, so there is family around. Very often, I'm alone, so that's not a big issue. And then I settle down to my computer for my own my email, my communication from a personal nature, uh, and my creative work, which is important to me. Uh, will not take me well past 1 a.m., often 1.30 or 2, on rare occasions even later than that. But the later I go, the less effective I tend to feel the next morning. So I, I try to keep it to a three-hour window of 11 p.m. to 2 p.m. on the outside, during which I try to be as productive and creative and, and write as rapidly as I can. And then the uh, whole cycle starts again the next day. So that's a typical Parliament workday. Parliament weekends involve flying um, on Friday night to my constituency, Tiruvananthapuram, which is as far as you can fly from Delhi without falling into the water. It's the longest flight, and very often it stops somewhere uh, on the way. There's very few direct flights at reasonable hours. So Friday evening, I take a, usually an Air India flight that goes via Kochi, where there's a 45-minute halt, and then land in Trivandrum. I get home around midnight, and Saturday and Sunday are usually 17, 18-hour days, starting early morning, meeting constituents, meetings, functions, um, ceremonies, all sorts of issues. Uh, and then on either Sunday night or Monday very early in the morning, uh, I would fly back to Delhi to resume the parliament cycle. The morning flights are 6 a.m., which means waking up at 4 a.m., which is no fun. So if I can get my work done by 7, I would take a 7.20 p.m. Uh, Air India flight again that has the additional merit on Sunday night of being nonstop. It comes from the Maldives, stops in Trivandrum, picks up more passengers, and then goes nonstop to Delhi. So that's on a Parliament weekend. The rest of the year is much more difficult to predict because when Parliament is not in session, I tend to divide my time between some days in Delhi, uh, at least 10 days a month in Trivandrum, sometimes more, because that's my constituency and that's where voters want to see me. And the rest of the time, uh, is unpredictably scattered amongst domestic and international obligations. I get invited to speak uh, to conferences, seminars, and just individual keynote speeches uh, around the world. And one can barely do 5 to 10% of the events one is invited to. Um, though, of course, now in the lockdown era, the coronavirus era, uh, uh, there's a blissful lack of travel pressure on all of us including myself, but um, in the normal year, um, when Parliament is not in session, I would expect to take half a dozen flights a week, uh, and that's been sort of the pace I've set for myself for the last 10 or 11 years, and I must say this is a most uncharacteristic and welcome break that we're all locked down right now. <laughs> um, contrast this to your UN days. Dr. Sarur, I want to understand uh, your career in the UN. You rose rapidly. And one of the things that uh, uh, we want to understand is, one, how different is your schedule uh, as a diplomat uh, from what it is today? And uh, the other thing uh, you, which you can answer in the next part of the question is that you are able to demonstrate uh, excellence and impact in UN like over a sustained period of time. How were you able to do that? UN is not known as the most flexible organization, most nimble organization. What were some of the things that you tried that worked? <laughs> well, um, 
On the first thing, the differences are so enormous. It's really two different careers, two different worlds, practically. So very difficult to um, draw any obvious parallels, other than that certain personal and professional qualities uh, would actually apply, it seems to me, in any profession you choose to go to. Um, the, the qualities of always doing your homework, being thoroughly prepared when you enter a work situation, um, approaching things in a spirit of openness to listen to what others have to say, to imbibe information, uh, insights and facts that you may not have known earlier. And then to be able to have the intelligence to synthesize them and derive from them uh, an approach that will guide you to an effective conclusion. These are professional skills that apply in any profession. So too, I think, is the ability to articulate uh, your understanding of the issues, what's at stake, and, and in that process to inspire your team. If you happen to be the leader of that team or have enough uh, assistance and others behind you, you've got to be able to earn their trust, and you've also got to be able to trust them and delegate enough authority to them so that they themselves feel empowered. There's no point in any team of the only one feeling empowered is the boss. Uh, and that's something which, um, again, I learned, learned early on. Um, and, and those qualities I certainly applied in my work at the UN and my work uh, as an Indian politician or running an MP's office in India or dealing with Indian uh, issues and constituents. So those two areas, no difference. In terms of um, how I could get the UN to be a little more flexible, let me say that um, I did push the envelope in every job I did at the UN and in Indian politics. Arguably, uh, it was easier to have more success in the UN environment because you did have fairly rigid rules and regulations, but you also had people of greater imagination interpreting them and people from multiple cultures who came into the UN in a spirit of being prepared to learn from other cultures. The rules were drawn up for the lowest common denominator to create a situation where everybody from any background, any language, any culture would be equally comfortable, equally at home and equally able to cope. But if somebody came in and said, we can do it this way and we should, um, uh, and especially if your way of doing it took fewer resources and less staff time, uh, you usually found the backing. And I guess I was blessed at various stages of my career with chiefs, uh, superiors, uh, bosses, um, who um, trusted me enough to give me my head and allow me to push the envelope in the tasks I was undertaking. So I would say that worked to the UN. In India, it's far more difficult. During my brief stint in government, which really cumulatively was only about two and a half years in office in two different ministries, likely less than two and a half years, I would say I found the bureaucracy much more inflexible, much more hidebound by rules and regulations, and much more focused on process than on outcome. In the UN, I was able to push a, an emphasis on outcome more easily than I was in um, with the Indian bureaucracy. And to my surprise, I found the same was true in politics. There's a lot about the political world in India that is simply not done in a certain way, and that people are very, very reluctant to have precedent. Um, the UN is also far more democratic uh, in the way it's run by comparison with any um, 
Indian political party, um, uh, though the Indian political parties are more democratic in the sense of being more responsive to the voters and to constituents, but in terms of internal organization, they, they tend to be less flexible than the UN. So I think that was on your first set of questions. Um, have I lost track of, of, of the second? Have I covered it? No, you've answered that, but there are a couple of follow-ups here. So most, your most popular demo, demographic is 29-year-olds around the world. <laughs> and you spent 29 years, or 29 years in the UN. So if you were to divide your career in different phases as an early career diplomat versus, uh, you know, really rising to the top, could you, could you just share how, who were some of your mentors and how were they able to sort of help you have the impact that you wanted? You wrote a very moving piece on uh, Kofi Annan. And if you could reflect on that and how, how, would you, how did that relationship evolve, we'll be uh, very interested to hear. Yeah, Kofi really um, was my mentor, guru, guide uh, for the sort of last decade and a half of my UN career. Um, he and I came into very close contact from 92 onwards, and, and we both left the UN. He at the end of 2006 and me uh, April of 2007. So they, they, um, that 14, 14 and a half year period, um, I was very strongly marked by Kofi's influence. I think I mentioned in the previous conversation we'd had how an Indian UN official, Virendra Dayal, guided me uh, to join the UN. Right. Yeah. So um, he would have been my first mentor. In between, I, 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 I um, would find it difficult to speak of anyone quite as a guru, but in terms of, of guidance and mentorship, I would single out uh, in my early phase of my career when I joined the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, um, uh, a couple of people. Um, at the very initial phase when I joined the UN and spent my first three years at headquarters in Geneva, essentially learning the ropes, ropes and mastering the um, issues of, uh, of, of what refugee uh, protection, refugee law, uh, humanitarian practice, the way the UN worked were all about. I would say that my mentor was a wonderful um, former refugee himself, a former refugee from then Czechoslovakia who became an Australian citizen and served the UN all his life, all his adult life, a man called Tom Luke. Uh, Tom, who passed away a few years ago as well, um, was, was really quite a remarkably humane, wise man. Very different from Kofi in many respects because he was uh, very, very uh, meticulous and fusty uh, with his work. But, um, but he was somebody who um, taught me a lot and imparted both humanity and friendship uh, into the relationship. And we stayed friends for many, many years even after I left UNHCR. Um, you asked me to describe my career in phases. Well, after those three years of learning the ropes, I was pitchforked into heading a UN operation myself, heading the UN office in Singapore at the peak of the Vietnamese boat people crisis. I think we may have briefly spoken about that last time. Forgive me. Yeah. My, my, but uh, it'll be helpful for people to, uh, to know more about it. More specifically, you were able to tangibly at that time see the impact that you were having on people. Does that change as one rises up the ranks? It can do. I mean, there I was literally on the front lines and that I was actually receiving refugees, meeting them daily, uh, not just running the office and handling the diplomacy associated with 
persuading governments to accept refugee uh, caseloads as exceptions to their immigration rules, uh, or for that matter, to try and persuade people to um, uh, to do other things. For example, I, I, I found myself very often in a situation where um, the government was reluctant to do certain things, reluctant to permit certain disembarkations and so on, um, uh, or make certain exceptions to their rules and policies. And so there was a, a certain amount of diplomatic persuasion required with both the Singapore Home Ministry and the Foreign Ministry. So apart from all of that, there was the unusual task for a UN official in those days of actually running the camp. Those are the days when the UN uh, uh, rested on the myth that it was non-operational, that all operations were actually conducted by operational partners, were usually NGOs or government agencies. Singapore was the sole exception in the world at that time because the government of Singapore neither wanted an NGO to be allowed to operate, nor did it want to take the responsibility. It said, you, the UN, you want us to take these refugees? Well, you bloody well look after them yourself. That was the essential attitude. So I had to be operational in Singapore without being operational on paper at headquarters. And I invented a formula where I actually parlayed my Jesuit schooling into an appeal to some of the Catholic fathers uh, in the Jesuit schools in Singapore uh, through their uh, social service arms to contribute to enable me to hire a camp administrator who, as far as UN headquarters was concerned, was working for them, and who, as far as Singapore government was concerned, was answerable to me, and who, in fact, was answerable to me. And so we ran the camp de facto, which was quite extraordinary. And I right. was deep in, in, in contact with uh, refugees, some with amazing stories of suffering, and some with amazing stories of, of heroism and redemption. And some very senior, I had former judges, former senior army officers, who had gotten a little boats and come out not knowing if they would survive, were picked up by ships on the high seas, brought into the port of Singapore. We bailed them out. We got them into the camp. And then we uh, we helped them organize themselves. We had free elections within the camp for um, the refugees to elect their own leaders and run their own affairs. Um, and, and, and in the end, uh, we, meaning me and a very small team of just often one or two other officers, would organize their uh, repatriation, I beg your pardon, their resettlement to new countries, usually countries in the developed world. And there were lots and lots of interesting cases uh, that that came my way that required a lot of creativity. Uh, I don't know how much time we have, but we take too long to talk about some of the, the, the stories that came out of that experience. Um, but it tested my ingenuity and my deeply, dramatically, um, profoundly sort of sharpened my problem-solving skills. Yeah, I was solving yeah. problems every day for which neither did I have any previous experience nor was there an existing precedent. And, and also, as a result, technology, I right? Years, those three years I grew far more than anything else. I knew a couple of stories. Um, one was about, um, um, you know, while all these Vietnamese refugees were coming in, um, right. there was... Um, um, there were two sets of non-Vietnamese who took advantage of the presence of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees Office in Singapore uh, to apply for my help. One was the first batch of Polish refugees when the Solidarity Movement was cracked down upon by the Polish General Grodelski, who, who uh, declared sort of martial law in Poland. A bunch of Polish sailors jumped ship. They were Poland had ships in all these waters. They came to Singapore normally. They took shore leave, but instead of going back to their ship, they jumped ship and called the UN, namely me, and said, we want asylum. And I said, look, I can't give you asylum in Singapore. 
what I can do is, is figure out if you qualify for refugee status. And I remember calling um, Geneva, the headquarters, on a Saturday morning and waking up the Director of International Protection at 4 a.m. and saying, what do I do about this? And the guy said, you interview them, and if in your familiarity with the refugee handbook, you conclude that they are under your mandate as deserving refugees, then it's up to you to negotiate a deal with the Singaporean government to protect them. Um, and so I interviewed these Poles, I think one or two of whom spoke rudimentary English. They said all the right things about being supporters of solidarity and, and having been, um, for fearing their arrest upon return and so on. Um, and I said, okay, I recognize. And then I called the Singaporeans to give them the bad news. The Singaporeans were extremely unhappy, first tried to get me to return them to Singapore custody. I said, that wouldn't be right, it would be a violation of my mandate and of international law. The Singaporeans then grudgingly accepted that these guys could remain as long as I could get rid of them very quickly out of the country and banned all shore leave for future Polish seamen. So I got the Americans to take these guys. Uh, but then I had another drama a little later, which fortunately wasn't my problem, because the Singaporeans' problem, because the Singaporeans had very good and friendly relations with the Americans, and there were American uh, naval vessels calling on the port of Singapore all the time. Right. What happened today was on Chinese New Year holiday, when I was actually in bed with a bad flu, I got a frantic call from the um, then foreign secretary, who later went on to become president of Singapore, S.R. Nathan saying, listen, I have a problem, I need your help. I said, sure, because normally they were quite tough on us. They weren't ever seeking our help, so I thought it was a great opportunity to be of use. I said, what happened? He said, well, you know, we banned surely for Polish seamen, but one Polish seaman literally physically jumped from his ship uh, that was parked in the port and swam to an American destroyer parked nearby. And now the Americans refused to release him into our custody. And my government has taken the stand that we will not let uh, either ship leave the port without with that guy on board because he's violated Singapore law. Can you help me? So I thought quickly and said, the one thing I can do, if you allow me, is I could interview because you see, his concern as foreign secretary was he was creating bad blood between the U.S. and Singapore. The U.S. Right. was seeing this guy as a big hero of um, of, uh, of, of, you know, anti-communist revolution as it were, and they wanted to defend him and they were talking about freedom and democracy. And the Singaporeans were interested only in law and order and observance of their rules. And they didn't want to create a situation where Polish seamen could jump ship with impunity and <laughs> swim off to other ships. So they were, they were equally concerned. And as a result, the standoff seemed insoluble. So anyway, uh, I said, uh, if I can um, try and get the Americans to give me custody of the guy, I could interview him and then you can let the Americans and the Poles sail off if I if I feel I can keep this guy under my watch. So uh, the Singaporeans said, great idea. Uh, there I was suffering with my flu and everything else, but I, um, I managed to bundle myself up, um, uh, trot over to the U.S. consul. The U.S. consul said, uh, by the way, he said, there's no way I can let him come to the U.N. office without any assurance of protection, and you have no protection, you can't protect this guy against the um, against the, the cops. So he can come from the U.S. destroyer under American guard to the U.S. consulate. That's it. Um, and you can interview him at the U.S. consulate. So I, I think somewhat um, inappropriately in terms of U.N. policy, 
accepted that condition in order to solve the problem, went to the U.S. consulate, interviewed this guy. He was really passionate and, 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 and really, and, uh, you know, maybe the American interpreter speaking for him was even more embroidering statements, but he was very clearly somebody who was terribly hostile to communism and to the Polish government. So I said, okay, I recognize you as a refugee. I'll take custody of you. Then I informed the Singaporeans officially in front of the Americans that they had to accept my determining this guy's status, which they did. And then the Americans released him to my custody. I put him in a cheap sort of uh, flop house, uh, cheap hotel. Uh, there aren't any more left in Singapore, but those days, early 1881, there still was. And I told the Americans, you got to get it moving very quickly because I, if the word leaks in the media that this has happened, the Singaporeans will definitely break all rules and, and, and try and take custody of him because they don't want this to be a precedent. So I've got to get him out of here. Having said that, the Americans were as good as their word. He was moved into this flop house. And within the week, within four or five days, but record time in these matters, they put him on a plane and sent him off to America, where he sent me a lovely postcard from San Diego a few weeks later saying, I never know forget you, Mr. Shashi, which uh, for me was uh, something I really cherished for a long time. I I put it in a box of souvenirs, which may not have survived my last few moves and all the termite infestations that have come into my life in Delhi. But uh, while it was there, it meant a lot to me. Uh, so that's just an example. Another big example were the Achanese, the first uh, refugees that successfully made it to any Southeast Asian country uh, from the um, uh, north part of, of Sumatra in Indonesia, who were fighting a long war of secession against the Indonesian government. Um, now, the, the, for the Singaporeans, it's super sensitive because these guys um, were fleeing a friendly ASEAN ally, uh, Indonesia, and the Singaporeans had very, very tight Coast Guard patrols around the island. So when these guys landed up in my office, and there were six, seven of them, uh, escorted by a man with Singapore permanent residence who was the designated, quote-unquote, foreign minister of the government in exile, quote-unquote, of the ATA, um, at that point, the Singaporeans were incandescent. They uh, were terrified that word would lead to the Indonesians. And they also could not afford to have these guys on Singapore soil. So I interviewed them. And very clearly, they would have qualified for refugee status under UN precedence. And especially since other Achenese had been given refugee status by the UN in the past in Western countries, there was a whole uh, collection of Achenese refugees in Sweden, for instance, including the leader of that movement. who was in Sweden. So when I called the Singaporeans, they were absolutely furious. They said they want access to these guys. I said, I can't give them access. Can't give you access. They'll be in my office. So they said, then can we meet them in your office? I said, why? They said, because um, we want to know how they managed to break all our immigration controls and get into the country. I thought that was a reasonable request. And besides, I had to cooperate with the Singaporeans day after day. So I said, OK, you can send an immigration person to interview them on that, but I will have my legal officer present as well so that there's no um, intimidation or anything else. They said no problem with that. Um, and so they sent immigration officers to interview these guys. Uh, my legal officer was present. She was a Dutch woman and, and she's or a German guy. I had, one, I had two of them. I had three, actually, over my time, a Dutch woman, a German guy, and a Swedish woman who were in my uh, number two, the only other international officer. And that was always a legal person. The legal person said there was no particular intimidation, anything like that. But meanwhile, I had to solve the problem. I couldn't keep seven people in my office in, indefinitely. Right. So I called the Swedish ambassador 
And I said, look, I have a major problem. And he said, sorry, he said, tell me. I said, I'm not telling you on the phone. Uh, so he said, what do I do? Shall we meet? I said, not in your office. So he was totally intrigued. I said, if you don't mind coming down, his, he had an office, uh, his embassy was in a place called Orchard Road. And which this was, was a, a carefully area. calculated move, of course. You wanted them to come, right? Beg your pardon? You wanted them to, them to come to your office, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't going to release him because if, if I had given them to Singapore custody, they could have put him put in jail or, or sent on a plane back to Indonesia, you see. So I had to yeah. find a solution that would not allow the Singaporeans to do that. And I had right. to do it keeping the entire thing secret and while finding a solution that they could live with, provided it didn't embarrass them vis-a-vis -vis the Indonesians. It was a complex set of calculations. So I went um, to Orchard Road, which is a teeming shopping uh, street, and I walked with the... Um, Singapore, uh, the Swedish ambassador on the street, and I told him what had happened. And I said, you've got to help me because you're the only country uh, that has got uh, a large number of Achenese refugees. And if you can take these people to Sweden, that's the only way I can ensure that they aren't picked up and sent back to certain jailing or worse in Indonesia at that time. This is, remember, the Indonesia of the Suharto regime, not not right. democratic Indonesia, but yeah. military Indonesia. So, um, so the Swedish ambassador said, leave it with me. Uh, he was amazing. I mean, he called Sweden. He later became the equivalent of foreign secretary in his country. But he called Sweden, managed to arrange. These guys had no passports and no documentation. But he managed to arrange for them seats and safe passage on a flight to Stockholm. The next day, that night, they spent not quite in my office, but in my office building. Because the, the Achenese guy brought them was Singapore permanent resident. He had a place in the building. And um, and then they were escorted by my staff and by the Swedes and by the Singaporeans all together to the airport. They didn't go through any of the normal checks, controls, passes, nothing. They were taken directly in a vehicle to the tarmac, boarded the plane and went off to Sweden. And nobody knew a word about this. The Indonesians never found out. And I couldn't even write an official report because anything could be intercepted. What were, you know, if, if a report had sat around a file in headquarters and been seen by an Indonesian, all hell would have broken loose. So the only um, a credit I was able to take for doing all this was speaking orally to the director of international protection in Geneva. But what, what made me feel particularly satisfied about my solution was that about six months later, uh, a larger group showed up in Malaysia of Achenese. The Malaysians took the same stand as the Singaporeans if we want them uh, returned. The uh, UN office said no, they wouldn't do it. The Malaysians insisted and police stormed the UN office because no such solution had been worked out at that point um, in, in UNHCR Malaysia. And there was an actual standoff with UN officials having to stay in the office for two or three days to refuse to let these people be arrested by the Malaysian authorities. Huge drama. All of which, and of course, there was a major political embarrassment between Malaysia and Indonesia, the repercussions of which then spread further. All of which I was able to avoid by doing this when I was in Singapore. So, as I said, the, the important thing I learned in those incredibly educative three years was the importance of creative thinking, out-of-the-box thinking, and being solution-oriented all the time. You can't ask a government to do favors for you that are not in their immediate interest. Um, unless you can find them a solution that costs them very little or nothing. And in all these examples, in the case of the Polish seamen, of course, I solved a problem for them, otherwise they would have had a problem with America. And one could argue that in this, I prevented a problem for them with their ally Indonesia. 
But I also, in both cases, had a solution to offer. I specifically had uh, something to, to give them that minimized the risk of embarrassment for them. And that, to my mind, was, was the lesson that I would say I learned from, that, um, from the handling of that episode. Plus the running of the camp, the resettling of the refugees. When I came, we had over 4,000 in a camp that was meant for a few dozen. People were living 24 to a room. There were even one family perched on a tree because they couldn't bear the congestion inside these rooms. And by the time I left, I had broke the caseload down to something like 150. Uh, of course, the departures from Vietnam had also slowed down, so I'm not taking enormous credit, but I had become a bit of a, uh, an expert on re rescue at sea cases, the law around it, the solutions available, and the, the, the uh, resettlement available after that. So looking back on all of that, those were three of the most uh, uh, exciting and effective years of my UN career. I then moved to headquarters again. The problem is if you do well in the field, they want you back in headquarters. Can I ask that, a quick question before sure. you go on? Um, these are cases where you can see the uh, problem solving every day. You can see the impact that you had every day. You were going to bed knowing that you've done you know, something tangible to enhance the lives of others. Um, when you answer the next part of your question back to the headquarters, could you also tell us, does that change and is that still energizing? Um, as much as it is to be on the field? And what can people do to match the same level of energy and enthusiasm uh, when their impact is, say, one degree removed from their eyes? No, I wouldn't say it's the same at all. Like, clearly, the, um, the two major differences are, number one, the work is different when you are in the field and when you're at headquarters is, whether you like it or not, a more bureaucratic, uh, you know, file-burdened place with formal meetings and um, and all of that stuff. But secondly, and perhaps uh, more relevant in this matter, is that in a, in a field office, if you're in charge, you're the boss. Uh, right. In headquarters, uh, you are um, uh, a mid to senior level official in a very large hierarchy. And there were, there were uh, when I got back to headquarters, there were at least three or four layers above me. Uh, and so uh, in those circumstances, obviously, the autonomy of decision making that you get in the field was not available to you. Um, in a headquarters job. So there I was in headquarters, um, uh, initially uh, in a very sort of bureaucratic job. I was chosen purely for my command of the English language. It was a job called the Secretariat, which produced and churned out all the official documents uh, of the UNHCR, its reports, its reports to the executive committee, to the General Assembly, all of that stuff. And I was the deputy chief of it. The chief was a francophone. Uh, so essentially, everything that came out in the English language from UNHCR uh, from, um, I guess, 85 January to about 87 uh, was had to go through me and, and was very often the product of my own writing. Then, and that was obviously, that had some limitations as of me in terms of excitement. But then I was uh, invited by the Deputy High Commissioner to be his executive assistant. Um, and that was interesting because it meant being the the the, the sort of uh, the, the the top assistant of the, the the chief assistant of the assistant chief uh, of the organization. So mm -hmm. though hierarchically my grade um, would have been some notches down from um, the big wigs, I had access to all the big wigs, and I was working at the very highest echelons of the organization uh, on the right hand of the number two of the organization. And that was interesting in a different way. Uh, but there were two problems. First of all, during my first in first half of that, the secretariat time, 
I had also been elected the chairman, the first worldwide election held in UNHCR by the staff of UNHCR to elect their leadership uh, in the staff council, which was sort of like the, the labor union of the UN staff. We never called it that, but it was a staff council to represent the interests uh, on working conditions and everything else of the UN staff. I was elected the chairman. Uh, that is, we had a, a simple agreement that uh, many of us, there was something like I've forgotten a dozen places or whatever. I can't remember how many places now on the council, maybe maybe less than a dozen places. There were about 23 candidates and we all agreed amongst ourselves. We just submit our names to worldwide vote and whoever got the most votes would be the chairman, whoever got the second most would be the deputy chairman and the third votes would be the secretary. Um, and that's exactly what happened. I got the top votes amongst all the UN staff around the uh, UNHCR staff around the world. I became chairman. And um, and at that point, the high commissioner was this kindly former prime minister of Denmark, Paul Hartling, uh, who was actually um, somebody I respected and got along very well with. Um, and I remember we had a very cooperative relationship as administration and staff, including uh, my leading a drive to donate one day salary. Uh, uh, to the organization when there was a major financial crisis being faced by UNHCR. So we had that kind of, that was, I think, 85, um, 85 or possibly 86. It was within that period because obviously I stepped down from the chairmanship of the staff when I uh, became assistant, executive assistant to the deputy high commissioner, because then I became essentially management. But during the one and a half, two years that I was chief of the staff, I, I, uh, I, this, was, this happened during that time. But that also coincided with Hartling's uh, retirement from the organization. And he was replaced by a man called Jean-Pierre Roquet. One should not speak ill of, uh, of people, but he was um, a former Red Cross official from Switzerland who was simply grossly unsuited to the culture of the UN. Uh, he had come out of a monocultural working background, had no understanding of uh, international organizations and working with other nationalities and inevitably clashes began. So um, when with that background, I was taken on uh, as the top assistant to the deputy chief, some of the resentments lingered and it was compounded by the fact that Hoke became progressively unpopular amongst the staff, in fact, very deeply unpopular, whereas Dewey, the deputy high commissioner, a, a charming and gregarious American, became deeply popular. And it was not good for either Dewey or me that the number two was more popular than the number one, because the number one was constantly trying to cut the number two down to size. The number two having been uh, having come from the um, the uh, most powerful government and the largest donor of UNHCR, namely America, uh, had his own um, his own protection, as it were, from being an American. Uh, all that Hokey could do is not renew his term, which in, he was to do later. But therefore, I bore the brunt. So not only did Hoke have a, a desire to go after me, but he had a desire to go after Dewey through me. So I had a very tough and disagreeable final year at UNHCR, um, during which I decided to quit. It was an interesting <laughs> process quit in my life. the UNHCR? Well, quit UNHCR in the first place. This right. was 1989 uh, that I made that decision. Uh, there, were, there was a push factor and a pull factor. The... The push factor was an active dislike of the High Commissioner, who was at that point only in his third year or something. So I, he was likely to be around. Normally, every High Commissioner got a second term. So I would mean 10 years I'd have to put up with this guy. And um, uh, in the course of our normal, we had a rotation policy at UNHCR where every post 
uh, uh, every location, rather like the Indian Foreign Service, had a fixed tenure of years attached. Uh, Geneva was a four-year duration. So towards the end of my fourth year, and then every uh, six months, UNHCR circulated a compendium of available vacancies arising as other people fulfill their terms. And, um, and so I decided this is a great opportunity to get out to the field. And I applied for and was selected by the board uh, and by the management to be the UNHCR representative in Indonesia, which was um, still very large, complex, uh, residual uh, set of problems from the Vietnamese, Cambodian, and other operations in Southeast Asia, the region yeah. I knew and yeah. loved, and I was looking forward to going there. Uh, the High Commissioner used a, a never-before-used prerogative to unilaterally change that decision and assign me instead to Nigeria, uh, and to assign the person who had been picked by the board for Nigeria to Indonesia instead. Now, I had nothing against Nigeria. In fact, I had very good friends uh, who were Nigerian, but I knew this was done as an act of punishment. And I thought, I don't have to take this crap. If I'm going to be working in this organization for somebody who's going to be looking for opportunities to pettily victimize me, it will not be a pleasant experience. And this is where the, the plus, the positive argument, the, the pull factor came in, and that was the publication in October 89 of my book, The Great Indian Novel, my first novel, which I've been writing on nights and weekends during my last couple of years at the UN. Which is among my favorite books uh, that you've read. You should really write more fiction. It still is actually my most successful book in terms of number of editions. It's had <laughs> something like um, uh, over 50 editions, uh, reprints uh, over, the, over the, the 30 years that it's been around. And, uh, and in, those, um, uh, uh, in that very first few months, it got rave reviews in India. I mean, uh, it was published in England by Viking Penguin uh, to mixed reviews and published in India by Viking Penguin, or by Penguin, there was not yet Viking, there was Penguin India, to ecstatic reviews. I mean, it got the most amazing, amazing uh, praise um, and literally unanimous. There was not one negative review in sort of the hundred reviews that emerged in three months when the book came out. Uh, so it suddenly was a talk, and, and everybody in India was asking me to come back to India, join them, and so on. And uh, the Times of India's uh, proprietor, Samir Jain, um, asked to meet me, met me, and offered me uh, a job as senior editor of the Times of India with all the freedom to do my writing on the side, and so on. And I was absolutely willing uh, to take it um, at that time. But while all this was going on, um, there were a number of parts of the UN calling me saying, Shashi, we must leave UNHCR and we understand why. Don't leave the UN. So I said, well, what else would I do at the UN? And one possibility would have been um, something else in Geneva, like the Disaster Management Organization, because disaster right. work was similar to humanitarian work. But they had no vacancies at the time, and I wasn't going to hang around waiting. Um, there was a human rights office, but in those days, it wasn't a separate independent office with its own building as it now is. It was literally four or five people in a corner of the Geneva Palais des Nations. And they had no vacancy, though they were interested in me. And that finally um, meant that I was pretty much reconciled to leaving because I wasn't going to hang around. But I did write to my old mentor, Viru Dayal, to apologize, saying, who had first recommended I come to the UN. I gave it my best shot. I'm sorry it hasn't worked out. And this is the reason why. And I, I, I talked about uh, Jean-Pierre Hoquet and his behavior, and I, didn't, I felt that he had been my mentor, and I yeah. didn't want to feel that I had ungratefully slammed the door 
on him. I didn't ask him for anything. I just wanted to explain my departure. Yeah. Uh, Viru again, and this is why he is the other name apart from Kofi Annan that I would mention in my UN career, is that Viru again is the one who came to the rescue. He passed my letter on to the then Under Secretary General for Peacekeeping. It was called Special Political Affairs in those days, Sir Mara Goulding, um, who um, uh, had mentioned to Viru. Viru was at that point the chef de cabinet or the chief of staff of UN Secretary Perez de Cuellar. So he had mentioned to Viru that he wanted a change of special assistant, that he was not happy with the uh, Englishwoman he had inherited from his predecessor, Sir Brian Urquhart. And so um, Mara Golding passed my letter, I mean, uh, Viru there passed my letter and saying, this is the kind of guy uh, you should really be having. What a shame that, you know, he's lost to the UN kind of thing. But Goulding then, to my surprise, wrote to me out of the blue or, or, or called me, I can't remember what it was now, and said, I hear you're coming to London for the release of your novel. I happen to be in London the same week. Will you come and have lunch with me or dinner with me, I think it was, at my club? And that was such a, you know, almost a cliche. Uh, a, a, a titled Englishman inviting you to his club for a meal. I said, I've got to have this experience. <laughs> so though I wasn't that serious about any other option. I said, yeah, I'll come to your club. It was, I think, the Royal Overseas League. So I trotted along in suit and tie, uh, as was required, and had this marvelous dinner. And to my astonishment, the next day he said, you're the man for me. I want you to join me in New York right now. And I was taken aback. I hadn't been uh, anticipating that. I spoke to my... Um, uh, family, because uh, in anticipation of returning to India, uh, my wife and kids, my kids were at that point uh, just about uh, four, four and a half um, at the end of 88. Um, right. I beg your pardon, yeah, sorry, uh, they, they were, they were um, 89, I beg your pardon, they were five and a half, uh, late, late 89. Uh, and they said, all right, we're going to, um, we're going to, um, um, no, I'm, I'm mixing up the dates horribly. They were four and a half. Uh, and, and they were planning to move back to India, not least because our twins were of an age when they'd have to enroll in the school. And in Geneva, they weren't being taught anything uh, worthwhile. I mean, in Geneva, the idea was that kids are meant to play and go for nature walks and have fun. And they only learn the alphabet from the age of seven. Whereas in India, to get into class one uh, in Calcutta, uh, to get into my alma mater, St. Xavier's, for example, they would have had to pass an entrance exam in which they'd have to be literate in English, Hindi, and Bengali and do some maths. So we said we better enroll them in some sort of uh, serious uh, lower KG, upper KG situation in India where they can learn all these languages and learn how to write in, in dramatically quick time. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So anyway, to cut a long story short, we did that. And um, they went off to India. I went off to New York. Uh, as a three-month experiment, because that's all he had the, um, he could only give me a temporary contract for three months tied, I remember, to the Namibia operation, because Namibia was coming uh, of independence under UN tutelage at that time. I came into peacekeeping, and then it just, just turned out to be transformative, because that was the time when the Cold War was ending. The Berlin Wall fell. Um, all sorts of uh, situations on which a lid had been placed by the Cold War because of the, uh, the balancing power of the Soviet Union and the US, uh, suddenly the lid was lifted. It was like opening the, the top of the pressure cooker. And all sorts of conflicts suddenly started erupting that were generating the need for peacekeeping operations. Um, a task force was formed uh, by the Secretary General to discuss the future of peacekeeping operations. And I was asked to be the secretary of it. 
Perez uh, Ikoya. Pause one second, Dr. Yeah, Thiru. Sure. Yeah. So, Dr. Thiru, these opportunities that were coming to you, if you look at it, like it, it was coming to you because your work would have spread and people would have talked about the quality of your work, which is why opportunities came. Um, is there, uh, and you actively made it a point to connect with your mentors or just keep them up to speed with what, what was happening. Is there anything else why you thought that uh, new opportunities came your way? Um, what else can, uh, can young people do if they are in such a situation to make sure that uh, uh, opportunities chase them in addition to, of course, doing your job really well, which you did? Well, I think the UN, uh, this worked for a particular reason, which is that because of this multinational international environment, people tend to not be very honest in the formal appraisals of staff uh, for fear of being accused of racism or national bias or whatever. So pretty much everybody gets a very good or outstanding performance evaluation on paper. And the real reputation of people exists only in whispers. That was the case during my... 29 years in the organization. Uh, everyone applied for a promotion or a job on the basis of very good paperwork. But if you call their bosses, the boss would say, you know, the guy is this or the guy is difficult or he's very lazy or he, his writing is impossible. We have to correct everywhere. Whatever that kind of stuff. Everything is private. So your informal reputation is actually what governed your real opportunities. And I must say that I was one of, I'm sure many, I mean, it was a large organization, uh, who had a very, very good reputation, both for the output of my work, but also for the kind of person I was, the way I contributed my courage in challenging, receive wisdom, and even speaking out of turn before bosses. Uh, so the kind of bosses who were prepared to be challenged were the ones who were willing to take me. And, and so um, that definitely uh, is what um, gave me my opportunities, I have no doubt, because you know, if I didn't have this quote-unquote reputation within the organization, um, no one would have gone uh, out of the way to, to some. In the case of Goulding, Samara Goulding, there was the additional challenge that India was overrepresented in the UN, and therefore to bring in India into headquarters um, was very difficult. In fact, I carried on for almost a year on a secondment from a UNHCR basis, rather than becoming absorbed formally into the roles of the main UN, uh, which could only be done when, they, when an exception was possible to the geographical quota for India. So it was entirely on the basis of reputation for good work done. But that, that's the kind of thing that, you know, when you asked earlier about the UN, as I said, within the very rigid bureaucracy, there is a certain amount of flexibility. And that flexibility comes from informal networks like So this happened, and, and I, I got into that. And then, um, uh, again, you got to perform. So uh, uh, initially, I was given a very safe and well-established operation Cyprus, which had been in existence forever. I traveled with Goulding to Cyprus. I wrote the first draft of the Secretary General's report to the UN Security Council, reviewing the whole Cyprus operation. Goulding was pleased in my work. And then when the Yugoslavia crisis began, he asked me to accompany him to um, Yugoslavia as well. And um, I was then sent out while I was there with a Finnish colonel by my side, just the two of us, through the battle lines during the war. I, I think... Um, that may be something we've talked about. If not, I can tell you about it. Have we already talked about that? We haven't, actually. Um, and I yes. don't think a lot of people know about that story. Uh, so so um, uh, I, I, I moved uh, to New York at the end of the last working day of October 89. Uh, in 90, sort of civil war started breaking out in Yugoslavia. Initially, the, um, 
the um, European Union tried to deal with it, uh, they were ineffectual and frankly they I think had a couple of incidents including one or two of the people being killed and they said let's go to the grown-ups, the UN has experience in peacekeeping, let them deal with it. And um, that's when uh, the UN Secretary General by then, Boutros Ghali, was asked to send uh, a team to Yugoslavia, uh, then in the midst of civil war, uh, to uh, come up with the concept for a viable peacekeeping operation to contain that civil war. And in those circumstances, that's when I went out there with ruling uh, Cyrus Vance, the former U.S. Secretary of State, who was asked to lead the delegation by Boutros Ghali, uh, the Finnish colonel, myself, a small team, four or five of us. And, and it was extraordinary because, uh, you know, there I was with one year's experience in peacekeeping and that too in a very stable operation like Cyprus, which required very modest amounts of work uh, by comparison, and Namibia, which was a very brief-lived operation. And here right. I was suddenly plunged into something. So it was a rapid education. And, and I, I learned, again, just like my rapid education uh, in the Singapore stint with UNHCR, I learned very rapidly what... Um, what peacekeeping was all about, and of course, confronting some of these horrors directly. I mean, I, I will never forget many of the moments. I mean, for example, flying in a helicopter with, um, uh, with wounding. Uh, we had to take a Yugoslav army helicopter because UN being uh, an intergovernmental organization, Yugoslavia still being a member of the United Nations, we were officially there at the invitation of the Yugoslav government. So right. uh, we had to fly, but the Yugoslav army helicopter was fair game for the Croatian rebels who were shooting at it. So um, uh, they had to do crazy things like skimming treetops to go below uh, the radar of the of the rebels, that kind of stuff. How scary was that? Very scary. And, and uh, there were moments when you thought that if you weren't shot down by the rebels, you will just crash into a tree anyway. So what price your safety? Um, then um, another experience where the, uh, the, the Serb pilot of the helicopter claimed he had some engine trouble and landed in a place called Pale, which was actually the headquarters of the Serb rebels in Bosnia, uh, just in order to oblige us to meet with the rebel chief uh, Karadzic, which Goulding then refused to do. So we actually sat on the helicopter for six or seven hours without food or water, uh, refusing to disembark and enjoy the hospitality of a rebel leader until finally the, uh, the, the uh, pilot relented or got orders to relent and flew us off again to our next designated stop. Um, or experiences like about to step into a particular area and being warned that it was mined and I better step out again. Being um, in, a, in this Yugoslav army vehicle driven by a Bosnian Muslim, at that point Bosnia was still neutral, and going right. through both Serb and Croat lines and meeting the commanders of field units of both sides while shooting was going on. I've been in a Croatian bunker while, while the Yugoslavos, then Serbian shells, rained overhead. And I've been uh, in parts of Croatia occupied by Serbian forces and had conversations with some of the most well-known or now notorious uh, Serbian leaders, including the famous Ratko Mladic, who was condemned by the war crimes tribunal later. And one of the more interesting and painful experiences of that first visit was actually going to a Croatian uh, area in Herzegovina, the part of Bosnia controlled by the Croats, and the Croatian soldiers there showed me some gruesome photographs of dead babies. I mean, rows of babies with their throats slit, bleeding, and so on, and said, look at these horrible Serbs, what they've done to our children. And two days later, I drove across the lines into the Serbian-controlled parts of Croatia near Knin, 
met Mladic and his commanders, and I was shown the identical photograph, not a similar one, the identical photograph, and told, look how horrible these Croatians are, what they're doing to our children. And I realized the enormity of the fact that these were essentially the same people, so identical, all descended from Slavic settlers in the Balkans going back to the 7th century, separated only by history and a minor difference of religion and language. Uh, one had been part of the uh, uh, the Orthodox faith uh, and, and wrote uh, their language in Cyrillic. The other had been part of the Catholic Austro-Hungarian Empire and wrote their language in the English Roman script, but essentially the same language, just 5% vocabulary difference. And, and the same ethnicity. So you, they couldn't tell each other's babies apart, dead babies apart from each other. Uh, in that horror, they were saying uh, that, you know, they've killed each other. And I met people. I mean, I met a man who told me that the neighbor to whom he used to entrust his key uh, when the civil war broke out uh, had come and raped his daughter. Um, uh, you know, the man that he would, he would give his key to when he went to even holidays, that was a level of trust. And then the trust being betrayed. Or... I've had a, 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 a Yugoslav diplomat saying to me, uh, I've spent all my life thinking I'm a Yugoslav, serving Yugoslavia. Now I'm told I'm either a Serb or a Croat or a Slovene. I refuse that. I want to be a Yugoslav. Can you protect my rights? And as an Indian, I, I had a lot of sympathy for people like that because I, 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 felt, I felt that we in India represent the same idea of a multinational entity. But the government of Yugoslavia that we were... Um, working with was de facto just a Serbian government. And as a result, that too became a very difficult ideal to hold on to the multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational ideal. Uh, and I, I was watching all this really burning up on Yugoslav history while Yugoslavia was falling apart uh, beneath me. And I became sort of the UN's expert. Uh, Boutros Ghali asked me once in French, uh, so you're our expert in Yugoslavia. And I said, despite myself, Mr. Secretary General, <laughs> you know, uh, but anyway, uh, I became by default the, the UN expert Yugoslavia without really speaking more than a word or two of language picked up on the ground. But I had the extraordinary experience of negotiating with President Milosevic, President Tudjman of Croatia, President Izabegovic of Bosnia, President Gregoric of, uh, of Macedonia, and so on and so forth, and meeting um, uh, these leaders presiding in very different ways over the decline and collapse of their country. Again, an extraordinary experience. And one of the things about those years uh, from 91 to 96, when I was Mr. Yugoslavia at the UN, was uh, the extraordinary experience of actually leaving one's smudgy thumbprints on the footnotes of the pages of history. It was different from what I said to you earlier about Singapore, that I could put my head to the pillow at night, knowing that things I'd done had made a difference to real human beings' lives. Here, yeah. I was doing even longer hours of work at the expense of my family and family time, uh, and, and the blood was continuing to flow. I couldn't say I was solving all the problems overnight. But by getting involved in such a momentous event of world history, I really felt uh, not so much my own importance as the importance of the occasion, of, the, of this great human event. I had, of course, ambassadors clamoring for my time and attention day after day. Uh, my lunch calendar was full every week. In fact, lunch became my principal meal because I never got home for dinner. Those were the days when I got to the point where I became a very light eater at dinner because I was very rarely home before midnight. Um, and in fact, my relationship with my own sons was forged entirely over early mornings. Waking them up, getting them ready, giving them breakfast and walking them to school was the only time I had with them because they, I never got home before they went to sleep in those years. 
Um, so that entire period uh, was extraordinary for me uh, as growing up as a human being, growing up as a professional, but even as somebody who had always been a keen student of international affairs, literally watching modern world history unfold in front of me as a, as a minor participant, but as a participant nonetheless, writing the reports of the Secretary General of the Security Council, fashioning the approach of the UN. I remember a, a decision I made that um, that had an enormous impact. Um, well, there's more than one. One I can tell you that, that uh, uh, was quite startling was um, at that point, um, uh, we had um, uh, control um, uh, uh, of, of essentially of the operation in Sarajevo, just as the civil war had begun in Bosnia. Uh, and the Serb rebels had marched in and take over, taken over the airport. Um, so um, the Security Council issued an ultimatum to give the airport to us. The Serbs were refusing to comply. Um, and uh, there was a ma major standoff. And this was dragging on day after day to the mounting exasperation of all concerned. So I said to Kofi Annan, who had just become Undersecretary General for Peacekeeping, succeeding Mara Goulding just a couple of months earlier, uh, I said to Kofi, listen, I think we've reached the point where this can't go on. I would suggest we go to the Security Council and say, we are washing our hands of this airport issue. Now you, the council, can do as you wish. Uh, because, you see, in the council, there was a stalemate between countries like Britain and France that wanted to keep this uh, peacekeeping operation, even though there was still no peace to keep. Uh, and countries like the U.S. just want to take sides, bomb the hell out of the Serbs and end the conflict that way. So when I said this, um, there was consternation in the council. Uh, the council thought I had succumbed to American pressure or that Kofi had. But in fact, Kofi hadn't and I hadn't. But what happened was we were able to do this because Butros Ghali was away. That was the day before mobile phones and so on. So there's no way of reaching him when he was traveling. He was on a plane, in fact, when we had to go to the council. So we just went to his political advisor, Alvaro de Soto. Um, and, and Alvaro said, sounds reasonable, Shashi. You go ahead. And Kofi went and conveyed this to the council as the Undersecretary General for Peacekeeping. So anyway, consternation occurred. That was on a Friday afternoon. Um, on a Saturday morning, I was in the office. I had to be every weekend. It was a seven-day week. Uh, and I got a call from the French ambassador telling me um, uh, a high personality from France, I cannot give you the name, is landing in Sarajevo tomorrow. Please make all arrangements to notify the Serbs not to shoot at this. So I was a bit taken aback. Uh, I tried to get more details. He couldn't tell me, but the hint was very Why strong. Was so very, very high personality. Well, because they wanted to forestall the, the, uh, an American-led war in Europe, which would have meant essentially a defeat of the European idea. Uh, this is early 92. The European Union is coming together. The Maastricht Treaty was to happen in December. This is the wrong time for Europe to find itself completely overtaken on its own soil by, by an American-led uh, 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 military conflict. They wanted to show they could handle their own problems. So anyway, um, what happened was indeed that. I... I contacted our generals on the ground, told them to tell the Serbs there's no choice, a very high personality coming. I said, privately, my guess is could, could be the French president or prime minister of armaments. It's a very, very big wheel, whoever it is. And sure enough, the next day, it was President Mitterrand who flew in personally uh, uh, to persuade the Serbs to surrender the airport to the UN. So I mean, that was something that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't essentially uh, persuaded the, uh, the, 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 uh, the UN establishment to try and wash hands uh, of the matter. 
Anyway, that's just one example. There, there, there were a few others, but I, I don't want to bore people with inside, no, inside stories. But anyway, so, so, so we, we had more than our share of frustrations, the entire UN safe area concept, which the Security Council kept using diplomacy as a substitute for operational viability. They declared six towns in Bosnia to be safe areas without equipping the UN to defend or protect them. So we were supposed to make them safe by our mere presence. But our presence was never credible enough to deter attacks. So these places kept getting attacked. They were human victims. And then the U.S. kept blaming us for being ineffectual. Well, in, in practice, we didn't have the means to be effectual because the means had been given to us either in mandates or in troops. And again, a number of things I, did, I don't really want to go into technical details uh, had helped steer this along. And, and it was very much a case, it was rather like modern courtship, you know, um, which offers you the possibility of gratification without commitment. Uh, <laughs> there one set of people on the ground that uh, uh, would have to, you know, uh, do the thankless task of trying to be present on the ground with their boots in the, in the hot areas. Another set of people would fly from a great height, drop bombs and fly away. That was their gratification. And our guys on the ground would wake up to live with, live with the consequences of the morning after. They were the ones who made the commitment. So it was just a, uh, an absolutely uh, ridiculous situation. And to cut a very long story short, uh, it was part of the untenability that made the UN operation um, such a, a contradiction in all sorts of ways. So I will not look back on those six years as years of great successes uh, or of making a difference um, other than on the margins of a profound issue. But at the end of the day, um, those six years uh, had two or three impacts on my UN career. I acquired a, a vast knowledge and expertise of a key function of the UN, namely peacekeeping. I was constantly being invited in the midst of all this to deliver lectures at places like the Royal Defence College in, in the Royal College of Defence Studies in England, uh, at the top the Naval War College uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, the National Defence University in Washington, uh, of course at Wellington in India, uh, even in Pakistan and Islamabad to the uh, the National University uh, of, of Studies, that they had, a, they had a war study center there. Uh, I essentially developed a worldwide reputation in those circles that followed the UN's work as the top authority on UN peacekeeping who had handled this particular um, uh, most challenging operation uh, throughout this period. So that then opened other doors for me. In my final year uh, in peacekeeping, 96, I talked to my boss, Kofi Annan, about contesting for the Secretary Generalship. Uh, many people know this, so I'm not revealing a secret. It was I who suggested it to him. I still remember the conversation vividly. Um, uh, but initially... Could you please, I know you're short of time, but we would love to know how you broached this subject. Because so far, you've clearly performed. You've outperformed your peers. You have great relationships, networks, the intellectual capital. How did you broach the subject with your mentor? How did you how did he take it? Well, well, Kofi was under Secretary General rather in the sort of Dewey hockey situation. He was a very popular under Secretary General under a very unpopular Secretary General. Butros Ghali had various uh, failings and limitations that made him unpopular, not just within the bureaucracy, but with the diplomatic corps. And frustration with him was mounting. But there was a convention that every continent would get two terms. He would have been the first Secretary General to be denied a second term. And, and he would be, uh, he was actually serving as an African Secretary General. So though the U.S. was exasperated with him, they, they found it very difficult to veto him because it would have meant offending Africa. Into this context, I went to Kofi and said, look, you're African. Uh, you get along and know how to work with the Americans, everyone else. You're highly popular, respected, 
and effective. Why don't you put your name forward? And Kofi said, I'll think about it. And then we continued talking regularly on this matter. Kofi's view was, look, um, I can't challenge an incumbent until and unless the incumbent becomes uh, unviable. And he was right, because uh, other governments, even if they didn't like Boutros Ghali, would not have wanted to insult uh, the first African Secretary General. But then Boutros uh, really managed to rub the Americans the wrong way. My conversation with February would have been about uh, with Kofi would have been about February of '96. By uh, the summer of '96, the antagonism between the two had got very severe. We now know from later American memoirs and accounts that the then Deputy Secretary of State Warren Christopher was sent to New York to meet Boutros and offer him a one-year extension, so it would not be an insult, but not a full term. And Boutros had turned it down. This was not public knowledge at that time. But anyway, when the balloting started for a secretary general in September or October of 96, uh, the Americans vetoed Boutros Ghali. And once he was vetoed, Africa said, in that case, we want the right to put forward uh, African candidates. And uh, uh, Boutros said, I'm not withdrawing from the fray, but by all means, that other African candidates come forward. And at that point, seven African candidates, I think, no, five African candidates, seven was my election 10 years later, Five African candidates came forward, including a couple of foreign ministers, uh, and uh, Ghana uh, nominated Kofi Annan. I'm proud to say I drafted the diplomatic note verbal that Ghana issued uh, to West countries around the world to support Kofi. Um, we had small conspiratorial meetings in New York uh, with the special envoy sent by Ghana, uh, an ambassador, to coordinate the campaign. Um, Kofi actually continued to serve as Undersecretary General and officially did not campaign. Uh, that is that there was no question of his traveling to member countries and the Security Council to ask for their votes, as other, far, as other candidates and foreign ministers could do. But his campaign was conducted effectively by Ghana and by the U.S., which had decided he was the right guy. Uh, so the U.S. backed him very strongly. And um, uh, in the end, the only resistance came from the French, who... Um, who uh, both had an affection for Boutros Ghali, who was Francophone, and a suspicion right. of America and of Kofi as the American. And I was the one negotiating with the French on behalf of Kofi. Uh, so at the very last stage, I think um, after two or three rounds where Boutros was facing the American veto and Kofi was facing the French veto for two or three rounds, um, I talked to the French, what would it take for you to lift your veto on Kofi? And uh, the answer came... What it would take would be um, would be uh, a serious offer to show that he would respect France's interest in the organization. I went back to Kofi and said, well, why don't we offer him your job of peacekeeping, under Secretary General for peacekeeping? And um, Kofi thought that that was worth doing. Uh, he reflected on it, obviously, for a day or so. And then he authorized me to call the French back and say they could have peacekeeping, uh, but that he, as Secretary General, would choose which individual Frenchman would get the job. We would give it to the country. But they'd have to give us two or three nominees and Kofi would choose it. That condition was acceptable to the French. Um, the promise was made that they would get peacekeeping. The deal was done. The French veto was lifted and Kofi was elected secretary general in December of 96. Uh, with me having been his de facto, but never de jure campaign manager. So uh, again, that was a, a, a sort of great story for the memoirs, as it were. Uh, but again, uh, it was about taking initiatives, sensing opportunities, and, and then, you know, risking, obviously, if this had gone wrong and worse, if Butros Ghali had been re-elected and found out that I was doing this for Kofi, I would have been in the same situation I'd been with Kalkay. I would probably have been exiled to, uh, 
Timbuktu or God knows <laughs> where But um, instead, I was moved upstairs to the Secretary General's office as uh, his executive assistant, one of two, in fact, because now it's a big, large global responsibility. I assisted him on, on a number of areas, um, thematically and geographically, including which was Asia. So I traveled with him for all his visits to Asian countries, including India and China. Um, uh, but I also handled uh, Eastern Europe for him. My colleague, who was the other executive assistant, did Western Europe and Africa. Um, and, uh, and, and both of us sort of did whatever was needed in the Americas. Um, the, the whole thing was quite an extraordinary experience for a few years because, you know, for example, when Kofi saw Yeltsin, uh, the president uh, of, of Russia, um, after dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, just after he'd recovered from a rather serious heart surgery, um, I was the other UN official present with him. And we witnessed Yeltsin downing uh, thimble after thimble of vodka as if there was no tomorrow. And we looked at each other afterwards and said, this guy is not going to last. And we were right, of course. He, 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 he um, drove himself uh, to drink and to an early exit from the presidency, making way for Putin, who was a totally different kind of self-disciplined character. Uh, I've stayed in the uh, Chinese presidential compound with, uh, with Kofi uh, during the, the, the time of, uh, of uh, Jiang Zemin. Um, I've actually, uh, though I didn't normally handle Western Europe, I did accompany Kofi on his visits to the UK. So having tea in Downing Street with Tony Blair um, in the tiny sitting room they have at 10 Downing Street, where literally people with long legs like me, our knees were rubbing against the knees of the guy opposite. Uh, who was either the prime minister or his aide, um, and and having also very posh and formal breakfasts um, at the at the foreign minister's official residence, uh, all of these things were um, were experiences for a young man. Uh, I was in my uh, early forties that were absolutely fabulous. You know, people one had only ever seen on on newspapers and television were suddenly people you were meeting and shaking hands with and, and many presidents and prime ministers who were more democratically minded than others would even address you by your, your first name and so on. Um, uh, it, it, was, it was a heady uh, experience, but it was also an eye-opening experience. It taught me, amongst other things, that the great leaders are not people to be intimidated by. They're just as human as you and me. They're no different in private. Because um, very often, for example, uh, Kofi would meet presidents and prime ministers one-on-one -on -one with just a note taker, and the note taker was not a junior official. It was me uh, as a senior UN official who would take a note and write it up on these conversations. Uh, I would even eavesdrop on some of his telephone calls and record the substance of those calls for the UN files. So I had um, uh, a ringside seat at, at the way in which world leaders talk to each other, behaved, and so on. Uh, and apart from meeting uh, a hell of a lot of page one headline types, I also learned a lot about uh, how people thought and, and, and functioned. And, 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 and in many ways, it was demystifying. One no longer felt that these were super special, supra human beings who were somehow greater and better than the rest of us. And that's how they got to those positions. They were in many ways no different from, and in some ways, perhaps not as smart as uh, some of the people one knew in one's daily life. And that was, I think, very, very instructive. And it certainly gave me uh, the confidence to take on any task and to aspire to anything because I had seen that people who had been, um, you know, seen as almost legendary 
in many ways, had been shaped in their image by the position they held and the opportunities and resources the position gave them, but they were still at bottom who they were. And very often meeting recent exes, you know, ex-presidents, ex-prime ministers, ex-foreign ministers were also very revealing because shorn of those trappings, they were particularly ordinary in many, many cases. In this period where you were learning directly from the top leaders and you're noticing things that people, you know, don't often have access to or knowledge about, what was something that you noticed about yourself that you hadn't realized earlier? Was there something new? Not really. I mean, I, I, I confirmed, if you like, what I'd always known, which is that I had an enormous capacity for information, facts and insights into all sorts of situations and challenges around the world. Um, I, 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 I guess... The mind that had grown up in the UN was a mind that had been shaped both by my education, by my own insatiable curiosity, and by the undoubted privilege of access to vast amounts of, of information and insight that would not be available to people uh, in the ordinary course of things. So I was just absorbing it all like a sponge and, and growing mentally, intellectually with that. And at least I had a capacity to do it. So... Um, that, that, I think, is, is, is the main thing. And I, I, you know, I developed a lot of interest. I mean, there's no, no issue, no world leader, no country, no continent that I found boring or uninteresting. Um, during the, the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, I discovered economics was far more interesting than I had ever thought it to be, and that economics actually had, significant component, had a significant component of politics in it. Um, and, and, and a lot of my thinking about these things, the clash of civilizations, was something that, for example, Strobe Talbot, when he came to see Kofi as Deputy Secretary of State of the U.S., uh, was asking the views of all the senior U.N. officials present about, and the only one in the room who had read the book was me. So I was able to give Strobe my views on the clash of civilizations. And both uh, Kofi and uh, the then Under Secretary for Political Affairs thanked me later for having saved them embarrassment because I had read the book speak knowledgeably about it. So all of these things um, uh, was, to my mind, uh, you know, I know it sounds terribly immodest and vain and arrogant. I don't mean it in that sense at all. There are very many people who are very good at various things to do with their job. These things that I needed for my work, I happen to be good at. And Dr. Sroor, this has continues to inspire us. In the third part of the podcast, we're going to uh, explore the final years in UN and uh, um, you know your foray into Indian politics and your writing. And of course, the brief stint in the private sector, which you reflect upon, uh, you know, once a while. Thank you for your time, Dr. Saroor. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Rukesh. All the best. Thank you. Thank you.